you're here for the first time, my name's Mark. I serve as the teaching pastor here, and I want to welcome you. And uh, CCPC friends, it's just great to have you all here this morning. And uh, we do plan to sing one more song at the end of the service, too, so that's uh, something to look forward to. That was a wonderful time of worship and singing. We are in a series in the Ten Commandments called Blueprint for Life. The Ten Commandments are, to many of us, even though we may have been in church for a while, um, not that well known. Uh, We did a a test run with our community group uh, at Christmas time and handed out blank uh, Ten Commandments, fill them in. And uh, I I think maybe one person got all ten. I'm not sure anybody got them all in the right order. But that's kind of normal. The Ten Commandments are sort of familiar by concept to us, but not necessarily individually. And yet... They are this blueprint for life. And so this morning we're coming to the second uh, of the Ten Commandments. And I just want to encourage you. I think what what happens when you work through the Ten Commandments, it's kind of like building a house and you're putting up walls and you're putting a roof on and each each piece connects to the other pieces. And there's a cumulative effect to this. So I want to encourage you to uh, just just continue to memorize these so that you can understand these and, and then uh, put them into practice. And, and the, the composite works together in a way that helps us uh, follow Christ. And that's what we're most desirous of doing. So this morning, we are in Exodus chapter 20, uh, where the, the, the Ten Commandments are found. And uh, verses 4 through 6, this is the, the second commandment. Not, every, not all Christians count the commandments exactly the same way, um, but uh, many count them in the way that... Uh, that is laid out in front of uh, me here in the ESV text, and this would be commandment number two. So I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to just make two brief New Testament connections uh, as well as we read the Scripture. So Exodus 20 and verse 4. This is the voice of God. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then John 4 and verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And finally, 1 John 5 and verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. O God, our Father, as we gather here on the Lord's Day, we know enough about you to know that you have a thousand good things planned to do in our minds, hearts, and lives this morning. We also know enough about ourselves to know that there are a thousand distractions that could keep us right now from encountering you, from by the power of the Spirit hearing your voice and appropriating in Christ what you have in this meal of of your word before us here. So we quiet our hearts, we slow ourselves down, 
We're praying. We're looking up. We're saying, speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Reveal your will, your character, your ways, your son, and your plans to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been in church for a while, I want to just ask, how many times have you been in a small group, maybe a 515 discussion group or a community group, care group, Bible study, something like that, and, and heard somebody just say these familiar lines? Somebody speaks up in the group and just says, you know, I have something I need to confess right now. I, I need to tell you that last night I, I did it again. I was alone and I got tempted and I tried so hard to stop, but I just couldn't. I gave in and I made an idol. I carved an image. You ever heard anybody confess that? Actually, to be honest, I've never heard anybody confess that. I've never confessed that myself. I've actually, to be honest, never been tempted to carve an idol or make an image. And so here we are. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything what do we do with this? Like, how does this connect with people who live in Northern Virginia in 2020? What is the second commandment up to in our lives? It can seem strange to us. So let's remember where we are. The big story in the book of Exodus is redemption. Israel starts out enslaved in Egypt. They've multiplied many, many people living there, but they're in slavery. And so God miraculously, powerfully, wonderfully, sovereignly brings them out. He redeems them. He saves them out of their slavery in Egypt. Why? He sets them free in order that they can be his people. You will be, he says back in chapter 19, my treasured possession among all peoples. They're going to be his light, his witness to the nations, so the nations can come and see and encounter God through this people. So he's saving these people so that they can be in this covenant relationship with him, in this close fellowship with him. The Ten Commandments, the sequence of this is so important. He saves them, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't make them free. They're not the means of their salvation and deliverance. The Ten Commandments keep them free. They preserve them in this covenant relationship with God. And so last week we looked at commandment number one. Verse three of chapter 20 says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the gist of that, the, the claim that God is making in that is that he's saying the God who saves has brought them out. He's freed them. The God who saves demands exclusive worship. He's laying claim to their hearts and their loyalty and their allegiance and the orientation of their lives. And so he, he's, he's saying he has the right to determine who we worship. Right. And he's saying worship him. Now, the second commandment connects with that. In the second commandment, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. First commandment determines who we worship. The second commandment determines how we worship, how we worship. 
The main point today, if you want a simple sentence that summarizes the message, it's this. We must worship and serve God on his terms, not ours. We must worship and serve the right God, commandment number one, and we must worship and serve the right God the right way. Right? We must worship and serve God on his terms and not ours. So there, there are two parts to how this is going to work out. First, God is saying, don't make any of these images, these likenesses. So we must not represent God using some created thing. That's kind of part one of this command. The second part of this is that we must not bow down to or serve or give control of our lives to anything created. Nothing in creation, only to God. Since God is infinite and spiritual, God doesn't have a body. To make images of an infinite God without a body is, and, 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 and say this is what God is like, to do that is immediately to scale him down. It's to distort and diminish his glorious greatness that we were just singing about. It's to bring God down to our level. We can't do that. To bow down to or serve or give control of our lives to anything in creation is to compromise this covenant relationship that we have with our creator, our maker, and our redeemer. So that's where the second commandment is taking us this morning. We must worship and serve God on his terms, not ours. Now, we may not be tempted to go home and carve new idols today, but the second commandment meets us right where we live. How do you know how to worship God? How do you know how to serve God? How do you know what God likes and doesn't like? How do you know what God is like? If you've ever wondered about any of those things, the second commandment will help you sort those things out. We must worship and serve God on his terms, not ours. So we're going to walk through this in three simple points. First point is how not to worship God. The second point is an illustration of how not to worship God. And the third point will be how to keep the second command. So how not to worship God. I just want to walk through the text with you and highlight four things that are here for us. This text is a it, it starts as a prohibition. It's a negative. So this is how not to worship God. So we start by asking questions of the passage first. What's the command here? What's the claim here that God is making? And he tells us right at the beginning. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. He says you shall not make for yourself an idol. The King James Version may be familiar to, to you if you know that phrase, graven images. You shall not make any graven images. That's a familiar phrase from the old King James from the 1600s. Now, this is very relevant to the Israelites because they were coming out of Egypt where there were all kinds of carved images, all kinds of gods, up to 2,000. The, the, the sun god was named Ra. This is the god Horus, the sky god. And if you look at the he head of this god, you'll see it's the head of a falcon. And so they were doing exactly what God is saying not to do in the second commandment. They'd taken something from creation, a bird, and then that <coughs> had been made into an image that was part of their Worship, it was a representation of their of one of their gods. Now, for some of us, this may seem strange. And for others of us, 
not strange at all, because the reality is that if you look around the world today, there are several billion people whose worship involves statues, idols, images that represent God. And so as God is, is speaking to his people, he's saying the, the claim, the command is don't make for yourself an idol. Now, he's not saying don't use your imaginations. He's not saying don't be artists or be artisans who use tools. He is saying don't be idolaters. That is, don't make images that represent God and then use those images in your worship of God. And for him to say this to Israel is going to make Israel different from everybody else around them. They'll be swimming upstream worship-wise. They're going to be the only people anywhere in that region that worships this way with no visuals, no images of God. In the absence of those aids for worship, what does he give them? What does he offer instead? He doesn't give them an image. He doesn't give them a visual. You know what he gives them? He gives them a voice. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 4.12. Moses is reciting and recounting to Israel this experience that they're having right now at Mount Sinai. He's looking back and he says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And that's the way it is with God the Creator. We encounter Him through the voice. And God creates this clear distinction between himself as creator and everything else as creation. And so here he's saying, don't take something from creation and make it as a representation of him. Now, that doesn't mean that creation can't lead us to worship. You see a sunrise and you say, look, the faithful God is still on duty. He's still causing the sun to rise at precisely the right time. God, I praise you for your faithfulness. That's not what the second commandment is addressing here. The second commandment is is saying, don't take the sun, make an image of it, a statue of it or a painting of it, and then use that to represent God in your worship. That's to blur the line between creator and creation. So that's the claim. Don't make for yourself an idol. Second, we want to ask of the text, what's the reason for this? Why does he say this? Well, he says very clearly, he says in verse 5, I... The Lord, your God, I Yahweh, that's the covenant name for God, the unique name that he reveals to his people, Israel. I Yahweh, your God. Hear that. That's very important to hear. Your God, I Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. So God is revealing himself here. One of the things we want to remember when we come to the Ten Commandments is the Ten Commandments reveal the character of God. God makes himself known in who he is through these commandments. And one of the things that he makes known right here is that he is a jealous God. Now, do you think of God that way? For many of us, for me, that's that's a little challenging because when I think of somebody who's jealous, I think of a person who's kind of petty and and proud and thin skinned and and easily irritated. And surely God isn't like that, is he? And, and, And no, he isn't like that. But this word jealous has has a wider range of meaning than that. To say that God is jealous here doesn't mean he's breaking his own tenth commandment, which is not to be covetous and envious and jealous, right? It means 
it, it, it doesn't mean that God is desiring something that doesn't belong to him. That's that jealousy, envy. It means that God is jealous, zealous, impassioned to guard what is already rightfully his. I want you to hear that and think about that. For God to be jealous means that God is committed to guarding and keeping and preserving what is rightfully his. Now, ask yourself this. What is rightfully his? Well, at one level, of course, you can say, well, everything, right? And sure, that's true. But in the context of Exodus chapter 20, what is rightfully his is his people. You are my treasured possession. I am Yahweh, your God. Can you see this covenant relationship that comes into view here? And so for God to say that he's jealous means God is saying he is totally committed to this relationship with his people. So, listen, God's response to idolatry, this isn't the irrational road rage of somebody who just got cut off on the freeway. This is the response of a husband who refuses to stand by and watch his wife be seduced by somebody else. That's what this looks like. It's intense. It's passionate. It's a jealous relational love. This is actually how he describes himself. In Jeremiah 31, which we read a few weeks ago that describes this promise of the new covenant. Listen to what God says. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about this very moment in history. And they broke my covenant, though I was their. You see it. I was their husband, declares the Lord. God, when he enters into this covenant relationship with this people. He enters into it with with all the zeal and the passion and the guardedness and the jealous love of a husband for a wife or a wife for a husband. So the reason for this command is God's jealous love for his people. Now, the 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 claim, the command is followed by a reason and then that's followed by a warning. What's the warning? He says, I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, again, this may sound strange to us. This requires some reorienting, just like rethinking the word jealousy. We we hear this this visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to third and fourth generation. We say, well, that doesn't sound fair. How, How can God do that? Why should the kids get in trouble when dad messes up? Well, if we think our way through this. We realize first that we're not isolated individuals and we all know that things that things that you do, things that I do, they affect other people. Right. That's the way the world works. We also can remember that in the ancient world, family systems would often find three or four generations living under the same roof. One family system. We also want to note from the text (coughs) that it appears to me that the children are not just victims of the father's actions, but participants, too, because he says he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And I think the implication there is that the whole family unit is entering into this idolatry, including the kids. And I would just want to ask if if this seems unfair or mean to you, what's the alternative? 
What kind of love would it be on God's part if his people begin to stray, worship other gods, and he just sat back and did nothing? A few weeks ago, Vince gave an illustration from the the, 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 the blessing of having commandments and prohibitions in our lives by, by reminding us, you know, what, would a, what, what does a parent do when a child has a knife and starts heading for the electric socket to put the knife in there? What kind of a, what kind of a mom would see her son doing that and just say, oh, well, kids will be kids. Let them figure it out. That's not love. We know that. You say, stop. Don't do that. There's correction and there's instruction. That's what love looks like. That's what God is doing here. That's how dangerous idolatry is. God disciplines those he loves. Do you find yourself maybe even here this morning in a place of being disciplined by God? There's some correction coming to you from God. I want to encourage you. That's an expression of God's love for you. Don't run from it. Don't give up in it. Welcome it. Be trained by it. This is an expression of his love. Warnings and correction express God's love to us. And he ends this command with a promise. He says he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This word steadfast love is this wonderful Hebrew word hesed. It's very difficult to translate. Loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love. It's such a big concept. But it's this relational, never failing, never ceasing, new every morning kind of love that he has for his people. He shows this steadfast love to thousands. Probably, and I've got it in the footnote of my ESV, it probably is a thousand generations. And that's the... Same citation in Deuteronomy 7, 9 has a thousand generations. He, he's, he's bringing this punishment on three or four generations. He's showing this steadfast mercy to a thousand generations. Can you see the character of God in these things? God promises that when someone turns from idols to serve the living God, grace will abound for generations to come. This doesn't guarantee salvation to every person in every generation, but it guarantees that the blessing, when you turn to God, you bring blessing into your family for generation after generation, even generations after you're gone. I had become a pastor before I came across the diary of a relative of mine named Elijah Lanham Frazier. At some point I was given this book that I have up in my office, I'd love to show you if you'd ever like to see it. It's dated 1890 to 1899. And in it are recorded the titles of all the sermons that he preached, people that he visited, how many people he baptized, funerals that he performed. When I found this book, when I was given this book, I had no idea that there was another pastor in my family tree. I had no idea there was anybody back there that was serving the Lord in that way. And many times since I came across it, I've wondered, I wonder what prayers Elijah Lanham Frazier prayed. I wonder if this is part of that thousand generation blessing that I came to faith in Christ and ended up serving as a pastor. 
This commandment calls us to consider our lives. What kind of lives are we leading? What will be the effect of our lives on future generations? Are we bringing corruption into our families or grace? Are we giving control of our lives over to created things or to the creator? The second commandment calls us to these things. Now, let me give you an illustration. We need positive illustrations. We also need negative illustrations. And the Bible actually is full of both. Exodus chapter 32 is a negative illustration. This is what it looks like when people turn to idols. This is the famous story of the golden calf. I'm going to just read the first six verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to drink and eat and rose up to play. What's happening here? Moses is on the mountain. He's up on Mount Sinai. He's been up there for weeks. Nobody knows what's going on. They don't have any text messages coming back and forth, telling them, updating them what's happening. No information. Here's the question. Bring this home for yourself. What do you do when you don't know what God is doing in your life? What do you do when God delays and takes longer than you think he should? Well, here's what Israel does. They take matters into their own hands. The people band together. Sometimes unity is great and sometimes unity is not so great. They band together and they tell Aaron to make some new gods to lead them. And being, sadly, a wimpy leader, instead of challenging them, leading them, he follows them. What could they have done instead? What, how could this story have looked different? Well, first, you know what they could have done? They could have remembered. They could have used their memories. They, they had twice at this point promised to God that they were going to do everything he told them to do and keep his commands. They'd heard the Ten Commandments. You can read about that back in chapter 24. Moses appears to have come down for a moment got the Ten Commandments out to them. They heard those commands actually being given on the mountain. They said, we are going to do these things. But they don't. They don't remember. They could have remembered this dramatic exodus from Egypt, right? They'd seen God do these ten plagues. They'd been through the Red Sea. They'd experienced His saving power. They knew they were called to be His treasured possession. Has He forgotten? But they didn't remember these things. What else could they do? They could have prayed, right? 
You know what I find fascinating? It says they got together and came to Aaron and said, make us gods. Because we don't know what's happened to this Moses. Do you know what's missing from everything that they say? God. That ever happened to you? Pressure's on. Trouble comes. God's not coming through. What disappears first? The sun of God seems to set over the horizon, right? And it's all horizontal. No God in view. No Moses. Aaron, you're here. Do something for us. No prayer. And you know what else? No waiting. No waiting. Waiting on God is an expression of faith when you wait in the way he calls us to. Instead, what do they do? They doubt, they distrust, and they disobey. Make us gods who shall go before us. Here they are out in the wilderness. They're no longer in Egypt. They've been redeemed from slavery. They're on their way to the promised land, and they fall into sin by doing exactly what God has told them not to do, which they promised that they wouldn't do. And this story is here for our instruction. Christ died on a cross to redeem us from slavery to sin. We have been set free by his gracious and great power. Now we are free. Where are we going? We're on our way to the promised land. Just like Israel, right? What do you do when you don't know what God is up to? What do you do when he doesn't do things as fast as you'd like him to do? With God's help, we can remember his saving power. We can remember his promises to us. We can remember what we've promised to him. With God's help, we can keep the vertical in view and pray. Turn to him. With God's help, we can wait. On his timing. And you know, there are some here this morning who are just doing such a fabulous job of this. And if you're part of this church, there are people that just hang around and watch. People who are waiting with faith. People who are remembering. And I can't, I can't go by this moment without saying, Brett and Sylvia... <laughs> you long slow motion trial with Sylvia's health but you remember God you're waiting with faith you come up every meeting for prayer and I want to be like you and we need examples like this and we have them it's the blessing of being part of a church Israel failed to remember, failed to wait, failed to look up. You know, there's a, there's a lot of Israel in all of us, isn't there? We, we tend to default to wanting a user-friendly God. We want a God we can understand. We want a God who will do what we want. We want a God who will do what we want when we want it. And the God that we serve, the God that we find in Scripture, isn't like that. And it's so much better that he's not like that. And the second commandment delivers us 
from creating little gods in our own images so that we can worship the one true God in spirit and truth. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we keep the second commandment? There's two things to say here. First is this. Look to Christ. Jesus Christ is the image, hear that word, the image of God. God tells us not to create any images or likenesses that represent him and bring them into our worship. And yet we should remember that God himself makes something in creation that images him. What's that? It's you and me. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see the language. God has put something of himself, a representation in human beings. People are, in a sense, God's statues. People are intended to point us back, to reflect back, uh, remind us of our maker and our creator. Now, we don't do this in our bodies physically, of course, because God is a spirit, but we do this in many other ways. Sadly, though, This representation of God in human beings has been corrupted and distorted by sin. So trying to to get back to to, to, to the the character of God through the the image that you see in a human being, there's pieces of it here and there, but it's kind of like going into a museum and looking at a masterpiece through one of those kaleidoscopes, you know what I'm talking about? And it's all fractured and broken up, and, and you can see bits and pieces, but you can't get it all clearly until Jesus comes along. Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hear that. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Where do you look on earth to see the exact imprint of the nature of God? You look at the person of Jesus Christ. John 14.9, whoever has seen me, Jesus says has seen the Father. Why? Because he is the representation, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want an image to help you worship, look at Christ. Because when you see Christ, you see the Father. When you see the character of Christ, you see the character of the Father. When you see the wisdom of Christ, you see the wisdom of the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So, how do we keep the second commandment? Oh, we fix our eyes on Christ. Second, we let the second commandment set the guardrails for our worship. We live in a visual age, right? You're looking at screens, right? Now, how much time do we spend in front of a screen in any given day or a week? We've got phones. We watch movies, TV, YouTube, etc. How does God want to be worshipped in a visual age? How do we know how to do that? The second commandment is here for our help. We want to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped, right? And what we learn from the second commandment and the rest of the Bible complements this is that the emphasis in bringing our worship to God isn't on the visuals. Now, that doesn't mean, again, God is opposed to artistry. The, there were beautiful elements inspired by the Holy Spirit in the, in, in the workers, in the, in the tabernacle and in, in, in the temple. But the accent 
in worshiping God isn't on the visuals. What is it on? What did Moses come down from the mountain with in his hands? The word. He had these ten words written by God on this stone. What did they hear on the mountain? They didn't see a form. They heard the voice. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he came and dwelt amongst us. The accent in worship is always on the word. The word must be central. The word is the most important feature. We hear the word. We respond to the word. We hear the word calling us into sacraments and into singing and into prayer. We hear the word opened up to us and made plain to us in the preaching. And so the accent in worship, the accent in worship services is always not on the visual but on the word. Now, it's not an either or. It's a one above the other. We come to experience and know who God is through the word. And we also see that our worship is to be directed vertically and not horizontally. Right. And the reality is we're all worshipers. And the second commandment gets at this place in our hearts. Paul Tripp writes, when the Bible says that we're worshipers, it means that every human being lives for something. Time out. What are you living for today? All of us are digging for treasure. Being a worshiper means that you attach your identity, your meaning and purpose, your inner sense of well-being to something. What is it? Who is it? You either get these things vertically from the creator or you look to them to get them horizontally from the creation. This is what the second commandment takes us to. How do we worship God? God is calling all people everywhere to repent from worshiping and serving idols and come to worship Him in spirit and in truth, made possible through Christ. What's the treasure that you're digging for today? Sometimes you can find out when you don't get it. What makes you angry? It makes you anxious. As you can find out by what you pour your life into, your thoughts into. What's the basis for your identity? Here's the good news this morning. When you make God your treasure, he makes you his treasured possession. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. Made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to just close with these words from the last verse in 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Second commandment still applies to Christians. Little children, saints, keep yourselves from idols. Worship and serve Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let's worship by closing with the song. So if the band could come back up. We serve this very great God who's revealed himself as a redeemer and a savior and a creator. And through him, we have been set free so that now we can live in obedience to him. And having been set free from idols, having been set free to worship and serve the living God, let's stand and let's sing with all our hearts and might to our great God.